if I def if I start defining your practice, right. then I'm leaving myself wide open for failure. Yeah, but I yeah not to define it, but of course I I don't define it. I it's something that I've never thought about actually. Um, and I guess as an artist would be a little bit different. We're yes. too close to fucking starting this year. Do you know what? There's a bunch of stuff there. There's already stuff that I've got written down in my notes. That we can dig into. No, I'm doing it. I'm going to go for a pee. <laughs> oh. Hello? Hello? Is anybody out there? Hello? Well, this is not socially uncomfortable at all. Welcome back to Radio Juxtapose. My name is Doug Gillen, and today you join Evan Preco and myself live in conversation with founder of New Art Festival, Martin Reed. With 20 years of history behind it for those within street art, muralism, or any kind of grassroots public art, the New Art Festival and its more recent incarnation, New Art Aberdeen, have long been regarded as leading tastemakers within the scene. Having brought the likes of Blue, Herica, Etam Crew, and a roster of Who's Who to the coastal city of Stavanger in Norway, they were one of the first names to champion the culture outside of established cities like London, New York, Lisbon, or Berlin. Today, we find ourselves at the start of the 2023 edition of New Art Aberdeen, which saw a collection of artists and academics engage with the city under the guise of rewilding. While both festivals have embedded themselves firmly within the fabric of the city, the Stavanger Festival is currently riding out some pretty serious turbulence in a battle to secure funding and support from the powers that be. With Aberdeen's contract up for renegotiating at the time of recording, it's perhaps useful for you to understand this wider context before we jump in. For any long-time listeners, this won't be the first, second or even third time we've mentioned the names Newart or Martin Reed, but it's the first time Martin's agreed to sit down with us. Well, it's at least the first time he's agreed to sit down and actually turn up for the interview. If you are listening to this specifically for more insight into this year's Aberdeen Festival, then make sure you're settled in, because we don't even get there till the second half. This one really is a journey. Martin Reed, in conversation right here, right now, on Radio Juxtapose. Martin Reed, In the house. Podcast, interview, Radio Juxtapose. Take one. Oh my God. Take one. Oh, can we have more than one take? Yeah, we have, yeah, we have an opportunity. To, oh, amazing. <laughs> can we have, we can have like cigarette breaks. This fucking motherfucker's wearing shorts. Hang on. How, how long does this last? It's not the first time that's been said in this room. No, but really. <laughs> when, when we decide that you're done. I'm already fucking traumatized. No, this is amazing because you don't like interviews. Uh, it's beyond don't like. That's an absolute understatement. That's like you don't like being arrested by the police and interrogated in a cell. It's like, well, yeah. But this has been like an over 10-year relationship that you, especially juxtaposing New Art, have had. That we've had, yeah. And this is the second time you've agreed to be interviewed. Not on camera or live. <laughs> why now? Yeah, why now? Why, do you, like, why did you say yes this oh, time? Oh, you've planned this, haven't you? No, we just know we just know each other. We Let's know ask hey, him. Hey, 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 hey! Cheers, cheers. By the way, cheers, guys. Oh. No, but seriously, why now? What a fine opening question. Um, I wanted to claim responsibility for what we're about to do this year, which I rarely do. It's maybe time to do that after what we experienced in in Norway, right? Um, where people speak for us. 
and and if it's in the media, of course, or a political case, you don't have a defense because you're not invited to the table to say, well, actually, no, that's not us. That's not what we do. This is what we do. And I realized because I've avoided doing that for so many years and allowed other people to speak for us, that the local conditions, they don't know who we are and what we do. They don't know who Jamie Reed is or who juxtaposes or who Stanley Donwood is. So they're able to push back against our practice with kind of local cases that they equate the same as, 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 as our practice, what we do or what I do. So that they have no concept of it, the international street art scene. They really don't know what they have. And it was like, oh, maybe we should have been speaking about this. Um, and we would have had a ready-made defense, you know. But you let, I mean, for years and years and years, I mean, this is the whole thing about, so for people who don't know, New Art has been around for over 20 years in different in, in different capacities, in different ways. Yeah. But you had artists speaking for you for so many years. Why, why is it, and that wasn't enough? Well, that doesn't impact local conditions. I mean, local politicians are ignorant of that. So at one point, you know, they're happy if you increase footfall to the city centre, or of course they're happy if you're in the Guardian or, or any international media. But as you, as, as, you know, these politicians are in place for four years, we've gone through, I think, five culture ministers and, you know, three cultural directors of the city and the political parties have changed. So, you know, unless you're on it all the time, mediating that content, you're, you're judged by your, your last year, yeah? And if, if you have a new political party or a new mayor, um, a new election, and they see there's gains elsewhere, then you, you're not getting support regardless of who you bring. You know, we could have Damien Hurst and Banksy and Coors, and it would make no difference to a local political campaign. This is something that, so Doug and I were talking about this before. You built this thing, I can only assume threatened the institutional art world in Stavanger. And, you know, we are in Aberdeen, Scotland right now, which is a whole different discussion. But you were born in Stavanger, so we're going to talk about that first. You weren't born in Stavanger. New art was. Just because anyone listening to this is going to go, that is not a Norwegian accent. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to Leeds yeah. and Yorkshire later. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the festival was born there. Is it? Doug and I were wondering if there was a way... You know, you run a street art festival for so many years and the artists that you curate maybe trying to get the attention of the contemporary art world, trying to get the attention of the uh, institutional art world, maybe. What if you decided to say to the institutional art world, like, you know what? I am going to get Damien Hurst and he's going to do something on the street that you can't have. Have you ever felt tempted to do that, to kind of like counteract this like well we have done we have done you know we worked with Mara Ansara in 219 she was a Venice Biennale participant for for the Nordics and we were the first organization to work that was one of the strategies we tried you know we worked with Jeremy Deller and we kind of stepped into that world which is also my world you know it's a world it's a world I came from but also the public are also ignorant of those names so for them it doesn't matter if you've worked with Jeremy Della no. but the institutions care the institutions don't care because for example we have been in institutions we did do the the museum but of course we did it really early in 2007 I think 
So the only other institutional in Europe before that was um, Spunk the Monkey at Baltic right. Art Centre in, in Gateshead. A legendary show. 2006, they'd planned that for three years. We did the museum the same year, just two months after. You know, an institutional show with Word to Mother and Deface and Dolk, um, uh, Logan Hicks, Floop. Only the second international specifically street art show of its type in an institution in Europe at that time. Um, the show before that was Damien Hirst in that same museum. I think they had 9,000 visitors over the period of, you know, we had 9,000 in the first month. They ran for three months. And this is with, you know, not even at the height of street art. I really kicked off properly then. You know, there'd been beautiful losers and institution shows in the States, but nothing really... In, in Europe, but the locals took to it like, you know, and, and and that became a threat to the institution. We never got invited back. We, you know, it was like the record-breaking attendance of your of your regional museum, and it's us reprobates running around with cans. We all talk about this, the idea of the threat, and we're jumping right in, but what is the threat? To them. For, to, to, for the way that you see it, what is the threat? What is the threat that street art and graffiti presents to the institutional art world that you feel is most pertinent to like what you do? Like, what is the threat? Well, in any cultures that, I mean, that are low in financial capital and fundamentally are at grassroots level is, is in, in terms of finances, very low, you know, relative to, to all, other, all other industries. Those forms low in financial capital tend to have very high cultural capital or social capital worth. And there's always an exchange between those two things. I think artists know they have to exchange cultural capital in order to get financial capital. And if that cultural capital shifts from what you have over here, you're fucked as an artist, you know? So if you've been making, I don't know, drum and bass for 10 years and you've come through that scene and suddenly grime appears, and they take all that cultural capital and you're still stuck with your drum and bass. It kind of happened the same with, you know, contemporary art and street art, uh, a certainly at a provincial level. You know, no one's looking at um, local artists anymore. Everyone's engaged with street art and graffiti suddenly. Are they though? Because like you say that, you're talking about that, you know, record attendance and you're going back to 2007. And I wonder, Change of the millennium, Banksy explodes. We get that whole explosion of street art. We get hit that point where by the time you're, you're 2007, you're already on that kind of like third wave of that hype and did it just plateau? And are we now just trying to get to a point where we're kind of clawing onto a new reality? Yeah, but that's in London, Paris and New York, you know. That's not in provincial cities with a population of 120, 250,000 and there's so many of those. And if you look at the art ecosystem in those cities, they mirror London, Paris, and New York, only they have their own hierarchies. They have their own artists who are top of the tree. It's not cause, it's a local artist who has been selling and buying. You know, they have like... Who went to New York 10 years ago, saw cause, and then went, I'm going to go back to Norway. Well, they have their little micro-climates. It's got everything, you know. Um and that's all they're interested in politically, exchanging the capital between themselves. So a local politician being best friend in, in Stavanger, maybe in Oslo is a little bit different, but a local politician, you know, 
you don't have any cultural capital locally by knowing international artists. You can't exchange that for votes or favors or, you know. And of course, the people who are funding these things and the, and the connection with the museum in Stavanger or in provincial cities is exactly the same as Mocha and MoMA, only it's a micro version of right, it. Right, right. But the structure is exactly the same. Because you'll see the director when you're on the way to the shops. Exactly. And you will if you move in those social circles in New York as well, yeah? You'll, you, yeah, absolutely. Every week you'll bump into the same people and it's pretty much the same in small provincial towns, same in Aberdeen, you know? So those conditions that, you know, we think, you know, there, there are art stars within the boundaries of Halifax, you know, or, or wherever, um, Minnesota, you know, some small town. There'll be an art star and, a, and an ecosystem that mirrors everything. In, in larger cities. Shout out anyone listening from Minnesota, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I guess the question is, because we've, we've kind of got in a little bit quick, for anybody who doesn't know, because people who listen to Creative Exposure, though, they have interests in many different art fields and genres and mediums and eras and all that kind of things. But like, what is... New Art was started as a music festival. New Music was started as a music festival. Right. Mm. So then New Art came out of that. Why did you find a thread with music, the prevailing culture of underground music, and then how did you find that connection with art that was happening on the streets? Like, What is the connection? Um, oh, God, it's a good question, but where do you start? Um, okay, so you're running a music festival. What happens so that you decide that you don't want to do a music festival anymore and you want to turn it into an art festival? Or you saw something on the streets that became something. Yeah, that so I think you have to get. I think you have to get to a wh why people, who runs music festivals, yeah, and who runs art festivals and who runs street art festivals, and why. And usually it's people, graduate, you know, and then you're an artist. You've done three years or a master's, and then you've graduated, and so you can ask legitimately ask this question and say, well, how did you get involved in art? And well, I did it degree at Goldsmiths and I did a master's at Royal College of Art and then I started. If we go back to, sorry, just to jump in here. If we if we go back to 2001. So you'd what, have to pick a year, for example, yeah. Yeah, like if we go back to then and you say like, you know, you have to think about who is, you know, who are the people that are running art festivals. In 2001, who the fuck's running an art fest? Who, who's running a street art festival in 2001? Because I don't think there was any. What's the scene? There wasn't there even one happening. The, the concept of a street art festival, I don't think really even exists at this point, does it? Well, it goes back to a really early a conversation we had. So my basic practice from foundation art course after Borstal and prison and discovering art through, we'll talk about that. <laughs> through literature and Dostoevsky and leaving that, you know, as a, as a teenager, still a teenager and, and lived through that whole arc from childhood through gangs, through prison and then back out into the world and still 19, still a teenager. You know, you, you've lived fundamentally that arc of your entire life that has been mapped out for you in those kind of underclass. And, and you've done that so quickly. And then the only job you can get, of course, is, is a dishwasher or something, you, you know. And then realizing quite quickly, wow, you're going to do that until you're 65. <laughs> so there has to be another, there has to be another way out, yeah. There has to be another solution to how you 
So at that point, I decided con quite consciously to become a criminal. I would join the criminal class and I would try and make it as a career, as a, as a criminal. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let's slow the fuck down before you try and gloss over this and skip on to some fucking art theory. I want to know what the fuck you mean by... This is how we get to art, you know. Okay. This this is so, my journey to art. It's not the same as other people's You've decided you're the Joker, art. not Batman. And you've you've gone through the life of crime. What crime when you say a criminal, what are we talking? Are we talking vandalism or are we talking heists? That, uh, yeah, those, yeah. No, you're going to have to give a specific... Keep so going. We don't, we don't come all the way onto this couch to hear vague things. No, you just <laughs> have, no uh, specific. But, but okay, yeah, those two. Uh, vandalism heists, well, you can have those. Well, well... Right, and, okay. And But the thing is, like, you know, most people would think of, like, oh, if I think about New York, I think about Martin Reed. At this time, you know, he's a teenager. He, he's also very uh, literate in King Mob. It's like, no, you're you're not. Like, this is... You're, you're separated from this stuff. Or, or are you not? Well, no, yeah. In a way. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, I, You're going to make us work for this today, yeah. aren't you? I, no, I love this. it. That yeah. is great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to say now that I was consciously aware of um, alternative academic subcultures, but it was a time of punk, you know, and I was certainly aware of Situationists. I was aware of Malcolm McLaren. I was aware of Sex Pistols and Jamie Reed. You know, we were part of the subculture. And and being a football casual, of course, came with art and music and flyers and rave culture the same. So the connection between our contemporary art into club culture and DJing w w was one. They were they were not separate career paths, you know. They they were lifestyles. So if you were wearing I don't know a Lacoste and a Villa BJ related also to music which came with a visual culture this is the first time i've seen you in a pair of air max by the way oh yeah, yeah no. there's a change in your visual identity and the culture that you're associated with and this is brand new i do and i pay attention to these things martin my clarks were a bit fucked yeah martin reed is always <laughs> is always worn clarks i've always worn clarks too Fred Perry and it's just like crew t-shirt yeah. but it's all part of it this is this kind of visual identity that we're talking about but he, yeah he, he, yeah he knows yeah so this feels like there's a breakout because now you're sitting on this couch doing this interview and you're wearing a pair of Air Max. Martin Reed four years ago wasn't wearing Air Max and he wasn't sitting on this couch. But he was wearing Clarks, yeah. Yeah. So there was always a nod back to my roots, yeah. Right. But it wasn't an accepted culture. So there, there is a shift. And, and one of the reasons I'm, I'm doing this interview is to promote that shift as well you're emerging from the cocoon you're a butterfly i don't think i am but i think the north of england is i think the north so this is promo for the north of england yeah this is i think the north is the solution that's such a i didn't see that one coming i don't think anyone saw that one coming we're in aberdeen right yeah i thought you were gonna say the north of scotland yeah, well <laughs> the, north of the, england. the north of britain i mean this maybe the celts are the solution you know it's certainly not shoreditch anymore <laughs> or, or or a hackney, you know. And you talk about the birth of new art, and that came through, you know, Riving Street. Uh, new music and new art is named after new phonic records on, on Riving Street. That's where the name comes from, you know. Uh, and you mentioned 2001, and that was Banks's first, well, 2000, at, at, 
at cargo. Yeah. Like, and for a lot of people, they'll be listening to this just now. And firstly, they're going to go, when the fuck are you going to talk about Aberdeen? We'll get to it, I promise. <laughs> Secondly, I think a lot of people won't maybe fully know how far back your connection into all this goes. And maybe the idea of you being in 2000 DJing at Banksy's first show at Cargo in East London at the time when East London was fucking East London. What do you remember about that time? Well, even back before, I, I, you know, I was a fine art graduate in 93 in London. And this was a time of... The YBAs. YBAs. They based Clef on Hoxton Square before it became the Blue Note. You know, it, it's time of the YBAs. Raiding, you know, Hearst's free show. I owned Damien Hearst's first dot painting, you know. I had the same tutor as him in Leeds all the way back to the 90s or after this, you know, I did go to art school. I did graduate from a college I wanted to attend, which was the Haunted School of Art. And I found out it was a, it, it was in Haunted Crouch End. It was, the, it was the art school that kind of, um, it was the first school to, the first body of students to occupy in 1968 in solidarity with Paris 68. And they burnt the school down. It used to be at Alexandra Palace. And then I found out the history of uh, of this school and I thought, ah, that's the art school for me. So even all the way back then, it was, a, 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 you know, a place of art was always a thing of resistance. So if we just stay in this uh, place for a minute, just sorry. Um, so we're, if we look at if we look at this era of the YBAs, right? If you're coming from this place in East London during this time, then why are they going your Hearst and your Emmas, Emmons and your Lucas? Why are they going in this direction? And even today, 20, 30 years later, would turn their nose up at the concept of street art, but you've gone in this direction and... Uh, what was the pull for you to go this way rather than continue down the path of Emin Hurst and Lucas? It was finding out that all the galleries in London were owned by children of aristocrats, you know, and that there, uh, there was room for kind of one northern ignoramus within contemporary art, but maybe not for two or three or four, you know. Um, and they gatekeep that quite specifically, you know, they took in their, 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 their little YBA gang and then they locked the doors, you know, there was no one reaching out to let anyone else in. If you turned up a year after Damien Hurst with a Northern accent, you were told to fuck off, you know, um, well, yeah, they, they were not looking to smash their own system, but it was an amazing time, you know, it was the only... And I think for all, suddenly for teenagers, you could, I know, you got the Face magazine and suddenly you could be a fine artist. That didn't exist in the history of the world before that point. The uh, a visual artist was, you know, you'd get discovered when you were 400 years after you were dead, you know. There was no one cool in the 70s and 80s, certainly not in the UK. The idea of, you know, being on the, on the front page of the Face or ID magazine as a visual artist, absolutely unheard of before that. Yeah, it, 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 that's the thing. I wonder, like, you know, when obviously the late 70s, early 80s in New York City, your fashion moda and that kind of movement of, of those kind of street kids getting into a more contemporary conversation, 
YBA is kind of breaking down some in the UK, I mean, you imagine the UK coming out of the 70s and 80s, there, there just wasn't a visual art culture, really. Maybe Jamie Reed in, 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 in but graphic design, you know, never accepted as a contemporary fine artist. But that felt like a, a moment. The early 90s felt like a Absolutely, moment. and it was kind of Britain's time to shine you after kind of... Thanks, Blair. Thatcher's children. You, know, <laughs> just... you didn't mean to, but you've turned into a, <laughs> this is actually a pro new labor. Propaganda. Yeah, I mean, it was Thatcher, really, wasn't it? You, you know, just ripping the heart out of social services and people forced to hustle. Uh, the flip side of that was, you know, people became. I can't say anything positive. Ah, you were so close. You were so close to saying fuck, something. You fuck centrist. That no, 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 fuck no. no, no, no. I don't want to. I don't want to do that flip side of the coin. That if you put, if you fucking traumatize a whole class, right? That twenty years later they'll start, you know, creating subcultures that you can fucking commercialize. It's like no, if she's not getting any credit from that, fuck that. But like fifteen minutes. 15 minutes, 15 years earlier from that YBA thing movement, um, you have this sort of subculture of the UK starting to emerge where it is punk, it is Jamie Reed. It's the photos that Tish Murtha was, you know, we, we talked about um, uh, Tish Murtha shooting all the kind of graffiti going on in Newcastle at the time, late 70s. You have these kind of working class sort of getting riled up. So it's not like the UK has been uh, adverse to kicking a little bit at the system. No, yeah. Used to do awards. Yeah. For sure. Right. Whole generations, you know. Then we just sort yeah. of got complacent right. on it, right? Well, but then you move, you, wait, so then you go, to, you go to Norway, you have new music. Why the fuck did you go to Stavanger? Did we get lived <laughs> together now? Hey, well, I had, I had a Norwegian girlfriend from the north of Norway when I was studying. And at that time, art schools loved Norwegians because Norwegians paid, you know, they had money. So we had um, the, the ratio of Norwegians to other foreign students. You know, I think there was, we were 18 people in our year and the three of them were Norwegians. It was like, I, how? And I remember I went to Oslo, just some skint student mate went over to, and he was looking, living in like this fucking palace with parquet flooring and rosettes there was a chandelier it was fuck it was student housing and i'm like hang on are you a millionaire was and he was like no this is this is normal you know you have to take your shoes off to go in the apartment so i was in a student house and i was like okay then we were invited to stavanger instantly to run a, a festival a new media festival in 95 i had a an art group called Face, which had a residency at the Institute of Contemporary Art in London, on the Mall. And they found out about it. We were invited to Stavanger by someone who knew my girlfriend who ran this club. Do you want to come over? And we did a street art festival in 95. A public art festival. Who? who, who give, us, give, festival. A couple, give us a couple of names. Like who would have been part of this? No, that would just have been our group. Face. Okay, okay, okay. There was no other names. Yeah, <laughs> it's it was, it was, <laughs> So there was members from a quite a, a kind of a radical cyber feminist group attached to some theorists at um, at the time who were at Warwick University. They were called Orphan Drift, and you no, know, it was really early days of 
the internet and new media was kind of a unpleased, you know, it was like a new frontier. The internet um, really offered some... At that time, it was like, yeah. wow. For, for artists and creatives, it got so homogenized and so what we did to the internet should never be forgiven. Yeah, because it was just like suddenly there was this whole new world. It was and so artists in the 90s. It was like, wow, let, let's go explore here. You know, it was completely unpoliced. So it's fascinating. And, and in some ways it was tied to rave. It was tied to club culture. It was, you know, we, it was tied to VJ culture. And it attracted a lot of anarchists and radical and travelers and rave community to explore this, you know, the, the new frontier of the digital, digital space. That manifested itself, of course, as visuals for, for clubs. And for the consumer or for the dancer or for the, it's just club visuals, but for the person making it, you know, it was attached to a quite heavy and quite serious cyber theory with people like Mark Fisher and capitalist realism. And so there was a strong academic side of whatever you were seeing on the dance floor was created and made by an artist, not by someone, you know, just running like program. It was... They, they were honest. Yeah. Um, and when we did this in Stavanger in 95, we actually did a Millennium Festival five years before. The Millennium, just to be ahead of everyone else, it was like, okay, let's call it uh, um, the first, world's first Millennium Festival. And of course it bombed, but we had, <laughs> we that. were... I love the casualness of that she did that. Of course it bombed. I, I was about to ask a question like, well, what, was Norway really open to this bit of bombs? No, yeah, but they gave us freedom of the city, you know? Okay. So we changed the color of the street lighting on the on the high street from white to purple for a week. And it was like, who lets you do that? And I was like, wow, this place is insane. It's It, it, was, it was like a little mini utopia, complete blank canvas. Which is funny because um, with my experience in Stavanger in Norway, it's... I, I, I've, I, continuously feel conflicted every time I go there because yeah. it's it's always number one of the, you know, these are the happiest people in the world and this is where you have the best and everything and you go there and it's like, okay, this is what money gets you yeah. and it's just, but it still feels it's, it feels sanitized because oh, of how fucking so much access they have bougie. to all the things that everyone else fights for. But the thing that's fascinating about Stavanger, which is like a really good microcosm of the world, is that we've all noticed that when I first started going in 2010, 11, it was way more open to it. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. it stopped. Yeah. And it got weird where people were like not as interested or they were almost told not to be interested. I mean, it, it was before people started trading virtue capital. Yeah. Uh, it was before. Can you expand on that sense? Yeah. Well, it was before kind of the generation that now accrue capital, cultural capital. So by hoarding virtue, you know, and you exchange that later down the line for, for financial, as you know, it's the start of your career path. So it doesn't matter if you have, you, you know, everything that Stavanger has now is the goal of the middle class. That is it. A hundred percent. Right. So you get a comfortable chair, you don't reach, yeah, that you, you know, once you got there, you want a more comfortable chair. You want a comfortable cat. You want to, you know, and they expand that level of comfort. And that's it. That's as good as it gets under that 
system, yeah? So when we, when I stepped in, and I was like, oh, it's positively utopic. There's no unemployment. There's no problems with immigration. There's no racism that is perceived as racism. It's perceived as curiosity, you know? And they had no urban subcultures. They had no tradition, really, of graffiti. There was little pockets of it, but, of course, not as a culture, not as a subculture. And they developed this consensus culture, like they were all in it together, but they were all in it together to the extent that now they were all comfortable, they had everything. What the fuck did we do now? Yeah, what next? And they also have this thing called Yantelovan, you know, deep, deep kind of the 10 laws of Yanta, which is, one of them is, thou shalt not think you're better than anyone else. So you can't run a club event and have a flyer saying we're better than ever <laughs> saying you're any saying you're anything oh saying you're anything at all you can wear a branded lacoste or drive a porsche that would be seriously frowned upon in the 90s in norway because it came through a strong social uh, democratic movement to get there because that's what happens if you have all those things yeah if you all have money then you don't flex exactly um but also tied to Christianity, you know, it's uh, it's the west coast of Norway. It, it's almost like cultish, and and it's still there. It's one once you see it, it's really hard to to unsee. You know, you'll be and, and I just recently with a pushback against New York, I'm like ah, you know, and people now are like, well, that journalist his father is a priest, or that journalist, or that editor of that newspaper. I, and I looked at the local newspaper, Stavanger Affenblad, which you always think is a centrist, liberal, progressive. But if you Google it, it's listed as a Christian conservative newspaper. And it's like, ah, that makes sense. No wonder I don't get all the references in some of these articles, which is about John the Baptist or something. It's like, and it's just slipped in there as a, well, not even slip, it's just natural. But once you start seeing those references to the Bible, you can't unsee them. Same thing in the West Coast of Scotland if you want to do Protestants and Catholics. Same same deep history that's Im embedded within all of us that, uh, that manifests itself in a different way than what you would expect. And they communicate to each other through that, yeah? So you, you could be reading an article about road closure and there'd be a reference to, I don't know, as St. Paul chapter, and you, and you just skip over that because it doesn't speak, but it's speaking to someone, yeah? Um, and, and I see it so often now. I'm like, oh my God, I'm in like a West Coast. But there's something about the, I think it's very fascinating where you built this history. Kind of mirrors the growth of street art in a weird way of like where access and success and money came into play. And it sort of, Look, street art, the amount of money that goes into street art is, has it, has it tainted it? Maybe. We can all, we can all talk about how the fact it might have, might taint it. But you were, you were kind of at the precipice of this growing change, both in a city and how the 21st century allowed for a city on the West Coast of Norway, really far away from the rest of the world, was successful and international, but also how this movement you were championed was also going through the same thing. And did you feel those parallels happening as the festival got bigger and bigger? No, you know, the festival never got bigger. It's the same amount of artists. It's the same amount of walls. It's the same amount of staff. Right, okay. It's the same audience. 
But your audience grew. Your audience had to grow over 20 years. But the more and more people considered you guys to be an institution of what was happening in street Within Stavanger. There's another question within there. Yeah, yeah. If we're talking about the institutions within the art world, is new art an institution? Well, if you imagine the boundaries within Stavanger, within the city where I'm based, if you did what exists in Stavanger, in London, Paris, or New York, you haven't even got started in those cities yet, right? This is a city where you cannot walk more than 50 meters without a mural. Without, not without a mural, but without a mural by a name, you know, by someone we know and respect. Right, a big name. You walk around the corner, there's a blue. You walk around the corner, there's a rower. You go around the other corner, there's a massive one-up mural. You go, you know, where do you see these Yeah, things? there's a swoon that's over 10 years old, which is this like, This is a yeah. really small geographical location, and we've taken the city centre, yeah? And if you did that in London, what would that be? What would London look like if you did what we've done in Stavanger? It would have it was just gone and it would be advertising or it'd be nothing. But it'd just be everywhere. You just, it, this culture hasn't even started yet because that will happen. That is the future in the same way that we thought electronic music had stopped with Chemical Brothers, you know, or can you get bigger than Fatboy Slim or, but of course you, or fucking Gary Newman or in the 80s, that was electronic music. But it hasn't even got started and, you know, Ten years, this is just going to be everything. It's going to be all art. You won't be able to separate it. You've always said this. You've you've said this to me since I met you. The idea of prevailing culture. It's a it's a culture that will become part of the cultural lexicon in a way that like is not even. We can't even comprehend how you know it will be contemporary art. It will be art history. This will be art. Well, it is, in the same way that Basquiat and Haring are already yeah. our history. Yeah, and that will be everything. It will be all of that. So who from who from this generation is going to make their way into the lexicon of art history? I think all of them, yeah. We no, are, no, 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 no. I want a less diplomatic answer. I don't know. You'd have to pay me for that. I do consultancy on the side. Uh, that's how he gets the Air Max. <laughs> I did buy you that Peroni, so I feel like... We got a name for that. One beer, one name. But that, no, but within that non-answer answer put my money on mr monopoly or whatever the fuck is jesus name. Would you fucking dare i know that you one day you walked around a city you saw a stencil or you saw a piece on the street that made you go like you know what this is gonna happen what was it you know going back to cargo i was um i was djing july 2000 and banksy and chief were having the dollar and I got out of the taxi, put my record box down, and and there was a Banksy left now, but one day we will be in charge. And which appealed to me, whatever. Um and of course I'd come out of um I was deeply deeply insecure and about the art world and to and overcompensated and, and went into crit critical theory in a way that you really nonsense you know Baudrillard Derrida and Wittgenstein and philosophy and just anything to justify the the space that I just fucking invested seven years of my life in and I saw this stencil and it was like fuck it's not graffiti you know what what is it because it did something to me and I went into DJ and I was looking at this work and I was like what is it it's not contemporary art and 
but there's there's something here that's gonna work that absolutely is is triggering something in me don't know what it is not contemporary art it's not graffiti it's something absolutely new and fresh and it really made me think about it yeah and it took quite a while that was 2001 and i think i bought my first piece in 2003 and i kept them separate for us for some years it was almost like a you know a dirty a secret where you were also into this culture over here um and then just digging into that and finding, you know, Barry McGee and Cause and Beautiful Losers and Barnstormers and, and, and early articles, of course, in Jux, but also in Tokion, in the disobedience, you know, the, they were called the disobedience, this early movement. I think that was in the year 2000. So there was this culture here that I was aware of, but over here, you know, I thought I was going to be the next Damien Hurst. Um, you know, I knew Sarah Lucas and Tracy Emin and Damien and, and YBAs. Um, and it was like, mm, you know what, that's, you're not going to be one of them because you're a couple of years late, but this is new. Let's, let's have a look at this. It works in clubs, which I was promoting at the time. So there's an element here of this, just a case of like slightly too late for that door to still be open and when that door is closed something has to emerge but you've got the taste of it so you're not backing down because you know what that can offer and you've seen this something there that's made you feel something different and you can say like hey this was completely new but it's not new when you yeah, saw yeah. that stencil yeah. right you're looking at that stencil and that's already in your dna because we're going back 20 30 40 thousand years at that that idea of mark making in the street and the public space is already embedded into you and suddenly now all the boxes are starting to tick and of course i had a, i had this education and i had gone deep into into theory and, and why art is art and why art's not craft and i knew jenny holton and barbara kruger and not so much john fechner all graffiti was no, but this is this is what's interesting what i think is very interesting about john fechner is that it is part of this thing in a for American, especially the New York emergence in graffiti, it was working class intellectualism that is a huge threat. It's more nothing more dangerous than working class intellectualism. Best way to scare a Tory is to read and get rich. <laughs> yeah. Which is basically where you come from. And I mean, I think Fechner is the one I always use as an example of like where America might have had it right in this late 70s in terms of the street art graffiti scene, like this kind of move to it was something else. It was something else. It was something it, that was that was something genuinely democratic and different. It was about actually taking the environment and creating something that was a conversation for many people to have. I think wait, the reason why new art has always been great is that you will you have never given up that slightly working class intellectualism in the curation of the program. I was like two levels below working class, you know. It was like people who didn't work class. Why do you feel that Northern England, you, you we were talking about this earlier today. An answer. Yeah. And we're going to talk about, you know, why we're in Aberdeen, which is going to really connect with this. <laughs> Eventually. Eventually. Motherfuckers be like, Doug and Evan don't interview anybody well at all. England. That's dark. Is dark. Why Northern England, yeah, England is struggling at the moment with the done. Um, but why, why, why does the energy of Northern, Northern England with, you know, let's talk about, you know, Manchester, Leeds, 
what's the importance of these kind of cultural hubs? I think everyone's slowly becoming clued up that London doesn't have the answer, that neoliberalism doesn't have the answer, that, you know, Shoreditch's idea of rewilding, fucking planting seed bombs and wild flowers in Hackney is not the answer. But there's something in the country, in Britain, in Wales, and in Celts, and in the mythology, and in, in British folklore, not specifically English folklore. There's something there that's in people's DNA, whether you're from Glasgow, Lancashire, Yorkshire, there's something in the north, a pre-Christian, pre-Roman, pre-invasion, that's I feel is deeply embedded in the geography of, of Great Britain, that's in the moors, and it's in the peat, and it's in the highlands, and it is... It is a DNA of resistance to this, and I think you find it in you find it in song, you find it in in whiskey. You know, you can drink a Lafrague ten year, and it tastes like fucking soil. You know, it tastes like a peat bog from the Yorkshire moors. That's the best description ever. Of and a it's good like, whiskey. wow, you you can have a drink, and that can connect you across four hundred years of history of this island. Just this pre-Christian pagan land that we have that people like Jamie Reed tap into, people like Jeremy Della tap into. And they do it through whether that's recreating the minor strike in, you know, the Battle of Orgrave in, in Sheffield, or whether that's Jamie going to the islands, you know, and, right. and and, and designing Sex Pistols first poem. There's something up here that I think is is not in the South. You're going back to like a thousand years of English history where the land was taken from the people and... Yeah, the enclosures on it too. Yeah. So if we get before the enclosure, enclosure I can't really just fucking pulled that one the cocker shit out, but like... But there is a cultural shift going on. You will see in the next 10 years, I'm pretty convinced, there will be a shift of focus back to the North in the same way as in the 1960s, there was a cultural shift to the north with kitchen sink dramas and Mike Lee and Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, where this whole class of people had their own culture. They didn't aspire to be middle class, they aspired to have their own culture recognized as culture. And that lasted for, you know, 10 years. We don't want to be you, you know, we want attention for, for what we do. I did promise you at the start this one was a journey. If you know Martin, you'll be in absolutely no way surprised at how a conversation on street art somehow ends up at William the Conqueror, but hey, here we are. If you're enjoying this episode, why not let us know somewhere on the socials, drop us a nice wee review wherever you happen to be listening in from. As we've mentioned, the theme of Aberdeen this year was rewilding. And accompanying a series of more expected mural artists was a collection of left field practices within street art such as London-based Ida Wilde, who worked in partnership with local schools to create a multitude of posters touching on the subjects that mattered to them the most. These were collectively installed in the city centre to create a large and, to a degree, somewhat interactive installation amplifying the voices of the youth in the city. 
Former radio juxtaposed guest Stanley Donwood created a number of posters for the city, as did cultural icon Jamie Reed. This curatorial decision breaks the festival away from the highly curated murals into ground-level activations that encourage both exploration around the city and participation. Coming up in the second half, we head off in a million and one more tangents in an attempt to get to the heart of this direction and the thinking behind it. This is Martin Reed for Radio Juxtapose. Let's just, like, there's a thousand things that I know we're going to inevitably get into because that's the way that the conversation seems to go. But let me just go back. Why rewilding? What does rewilding mean to you at this exact point in time that made it feel like the appropriate theme for this year's festival? You weren't painting on the streets because you, because you were like, oh, this is a career choice. You know, when you graduated in the in the 90s, and you do find out that all the commercial galleries in the UK are owned and run by the children of aristocrats. But okay, that's not an option. You can't go in there. The other alternative is the public art sector. At that point, there was very little going on. Yeah, Then it was kind of a brown, dusty, um, bureaucratic model of rate in right. public public art practice. City spending a couple hundred grand on a piece of art, you realize. For example, there's that world, and then there was an alternative art practice, which was graffiti, or it was hustling as a graphic designer making flyers or banners for clubs. When new media happened and people started messing with 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 digital cultures, then you entered this space, this uh, club culture space, yeah, which came with ketamine and ecstasy and all sorts of experiments, not only just on the dance floor, but also in theory, you know, there's some very heavy, serious theorists dealing with the implications of digital cultures in the 90s. And as I said before, we had this, you know, open, unpleased, free space that we could enter. <laughs> See, this is what happens. I just asked you, man, where rewilding came from. So this old concept of rewilding is to avoid this idea of art being something that's cultivated, you know? So if you imagine all the institutions are cultivating roses and daffodils and interbreeding fucking orchids or whatever, and then the public have got to come in here and look at your cultivated garden and these are the, these are the best. But you're on the street and, you know, there's daffodils and dandelion why are these not you know or the weeds or so this idea of kind of uncurating or uncultivated ways of seeing the world i always found fascinating yeah but how do you something that you want well you uncurate it yeah someone's going to be listening to this and they're like no i'm not buying that you can't uncurate something that's curated. A really practical way to do that is to look at what's dominant in a culture. And if you're looking at what's dominant in our culture, visual, as visual art practice, whether that's graphic design or contemporary art, and you l take what's dominant in a culture and use it against itself, yeah? So then you shift the conversation over here. And if you have any access to a platform where you can use that power, it makes sense logically to everyone that art is over here. It's not the cultivated rose in the institution. So it's not about 
getting in those institutions. It's about taking the doors off and getting those forms of expression out into the street. Did you struggle with the idea that you were trying to, that you did create themes every year, that you did create curated, you curate artists that fit a theme? Was that a struggle for you to kind of be like, okay, well, you know, I'm... But this year it's about... Yeah, yeah, and like, okay, well... I want to fight against that a little bit, but I also want to make sure there's a cohesive story going on. Like, there's Yeah, no, it sounds really, I mean, that worldview, I think, is quite specific to someone who wants to make a career in, in that world, you know, right. and, that, and that's not my goal and never has my goal. So, uh, I don't know, it's if you, everything is connected, yeah? So whatever you're interested in today, if I'm reading Dostoevsky, and Raskolnikov's ethical dilemma about whether he can kill some old lady for a watch to survive as a member of the underclass. I will read it and that I'll obsess over it for three months and think, can you legitimately justify ethically, morally, killing a rich old lady who's exploiting uh, an underclass as a pawnbroker, can you justify killing her for your own survival? And at the time I was reading it, I was like, yes, you fucking can. You know, there, there are ways to justify murder within the culture that we live. And this is, this is coming from, this is coming from a book. No, but you know what I mean? It's coming from Dostoevsky. And if you read that, you don't read that as a, a fucking murder thriller you know you seriously have to get into that headspace of those lead characters and think about this can you justify that wow did you really just read something and you now you think you can just you have to go quite deep into from that comes the themes of new art right but for i mean not that specific let's go let's go murder bureaucrats no rich no old, no but you're, so, you're talking about murdering parts of the culture that are free and for example open, yeah and that you have to you're you're sort of creating something around that kind of slightly killing something that you love well a, re a really interesting for me analogy back to rewilding and that is there's a french uh, botanist who's also a theorist and an author a horticulturist and a gardener called gilles clement who is a researcher and an academic, but also a gardener, you know, designs gardens. Uh, and through his research, he wrote a manifesto, the, the, the third landscape, and found out that between kind of cultivated land, man-made land, and abandoned land left to itself, like the gap in between that for like two meters, 80% more biodiversity in this space between cultivated and 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 nature so there are there's spaces are you a centrist martin oh absolutely not you said like you've just made the case for centrism this is not this is not a centrism i don't know it sounds like you're talking about the space in the center martin i don't know how you drew that conclusion from those two I geographical didn't even, location now i like it i think you're absolutely not i'd just like to for the record I would just like to align all centrists with fascism in a little bit like the Scooby-Doo, you know, when you pull the mask off the centrist and really it's like, ha ha, you're a fascist.
<laughs> Wait, so why? So as we talk about these, no, no don't entertain that any further. As we're talking about fascism and Blair and Clinton ears, uh, why does Aberdeen work for you? Like, why? Why has it worked well for you for the last five, six, seven years in Aberdeen? Yeah, why does it work? You, you know, know, we've been invited to so many cities after after the success of Stavanger, which you know fundamentally is a little wooden village nestled on the fucking west coast of, of Norway, a little wooden village, a population of uh, 100,000 people. And, you know, we made mistakes, of course, every year and every week and still do. But everything we learned there, you know, came in the organization. And when we get invited to do other projects, commercial or not, I hadn't found anywhere. It was like, you know, People were like, let's go to the Bahamas, or let's go, to, we'll do something in Berlin, or let's... But uh, when I came here, I, w I said, leave me alone for a couple of nights. It was November, you know, fucking hot, freezing cold, pissing down with rain every night. I was in the Douglas Hotel. Leave me alone for a couple of days, and I'll find my way around the city, and, and we have a meeting on Monday morning. I flew in on the Friday night. Came out, and they were like, well, there's one criteria, you're not allowed to touch any granite. So I came out of the hotel and it was like fucking granite left, right and center. You know, it was like, okay. And then there was this little dark alley and I was like, fuck, I was get stabbed if I go down. Go have a look. And it opened up into this kind of vista and it was a little rundown and I had to wander around, little car park. I'm like, okay, there's, um, there's spaces, you know, in between the gaps where you, you, you could occupy these. And then I had a meeting, I had, I had like, t I think I brought 10 stickers with me and I put them out over that, over that weekend, came to the meeting and Monday morning boardroom, you know, and execs and counselors and sat down and one guy just went, oh, your stickers. I was like, whoa. Imagine now if you came out and you saw a mural or you saw a piece or you saw a, like, okay, we can have an impact here. And I, and I always said, even in Stavanger, that the success of this culture is not game work up. You know, anyone can go out and sort a wall and cherry picker and, and, and get work up. But when the community demand and actually fight against it coming down, then you know you're winning, right? So people expect work in the street in the same way that they expect work. They expect to go in a museum and see fucking art, you know? And there'll come a point when people are walking through the street and they were like, what's wrong with this city? Why don't we have art on our streets? And that's happening, you know. People in Stavanger, there was a campaign to save the Logan Hicks. It had been there since 2006. And people had seen this uh, scaffold, you know, slowly making its way around the shopping center. And someone in a local cafe said, oh, I think they're going to paint over, you know, this piece. And I'm like, well, I can't say anything because, you know, it'll stop people giving us walls. But, you know, if you want if you, if you to... Do it, you know. You you quite, and she wrote to the paper, and there was a campaign to save the Logan Hicks. You know, it, it's not international news, but it means locally, provincially, that the community came together to save the Logan Hicks. You know, New York artists, Baltimore artists, in a village in Western Norway. That's never happened before. I feel like you're the type of person who doesn't mind if something gets eradicated. No, I think all art should be eradicated every twenty years and start again. I, I have no problem with. That losing the money. If you took all the Rothkos off the planet tomorrow, it would have zero impact. 
not only on me but on my class you know no but in the street right burn it down and fucking go again okay someone's tagged over the bank someone else is going to come in and do it burn it down and build it back up again i mean the thing is if you if you if you're aware of this you know it sounds super you know uh, controversial but there's manifestos written logic manifestos that say art should i advocate for all art no art should last more than 20 years you know Auto-destructive manifesto by Gustav Metzger, and even in the street, even in the museum, no, even in the museum, even in in the museums. Yeah, what's the difference? But there is no difference, really. Uh, if you're having a hiring in a museum or a hiring in the street, there's no difference whether you destroy one end. Is that based on the fact that you feel like if we see something that's really, really old in a museum, that we get we get tied to a certain era? There's nothing new under the sun, right? So yeah. it's just going to get repeated next year and the year after who was the last artist that just fucking grabbed you that you just looked at and went that's new that's different i feel it i feel it. i feel the same thing that i felt when i saw that bank stencil yeah yeah you know i i collect work so it could be anyone from joseph boys nah i'm not taking this answer but you mean you mean nah, street art fuck it now i do Who's looking to buy stuff? Yeah, he is. Yeah. This is market research right now. Yeah. No, all I want to do is reaffirm the idea that when people say street art's dead or when oh, right, this right. this culture Fair is enough. dying and it's ours, that we can turn around and go, no, it's fucking not, because every day we turn around and we get excited by people. Every every single day, every single artist who's who's here this year at some point uh, is like, ah, that's relevant. Um, and I think we judge things too harshly. You know, when I started booking music festivals, first festivals, I, I just booked people I liked, you know. I, bu- I booked DJs I liked. I had Carl Craig, Underground Resistance, Chemical Brothers, just people I liked. But then if you want to attach that to music, not just club culture, create a narrative between club cultures, just so you're not a bunch of, you know, it beats a loving hedonist necking pills on a Saturday, which is one thing. But there's also people like Carl Hound, you know, people who in our lifetime invented electronic music. You're a thinking human being. You know what you're dancing to is, you know, the genesis is either in, you know, Stonewall and disco or it's in Detroit and and all the way back through, through our culture to Germany and Stockhausen. And just being able to sample music, people like Pierre Henry, you know, sampling tape, Sampling culture exists in our in our lifetime. Didn't exist before this generation, uh, and I think that's fascinating. I think that's happening with art, with visual art. Now we're living through that, so it's never going away. This idea of painting on the streets in a hundred years time, or two hundred, or a thousand years time, this generation will look at it the same way that our generation looks at cave painting. Well, we found these paintings in caves. We're like, well. In the 2000s, a fucking something happened in human in human culture where people started painting on the streets freely, and and that's a, hasn't happened before. Fifteen years old now. What is it that what is it that's grabbing you in the same way that grabbed you back then? Is it street art or is it something else? I mean, it's quite interesting. I think it will be street art forever. Uh, I I just don't. Th- I think it's street art forever. Can leave your front door now across all classes, whether you're living in a fucking caravan as a traveller or you're living in, you know, an upper-class apartment in Hampstead. Or fucking Little Venice. 
and you're walking the same streets and you come out and you're either going to see a Peugeot or you're going to see a a cool or a Martin Watson or a stencil or a beautiful academy rendered ceramic pot on the side of a building and these are the things that are going to connect with you in the same way that you know when you wake up in the morning what book do you read as a teenager are you are you reading Harry Potter do you are you someone's giving you a Jean-Paul Sartre novel or you know what so I, I think it's just going to be everywhere, you know. It, it's just going to be so deeply part of our culture. And I think the hierarchy, or, or this false hierarchy, this belief system, this power that attaches, you know, the spirituality of a Rothko and equates it with God all the way down through institutions, church, the museum, and the bishop, and the director, and the priest, and the curator. Um, all the way down, that will be gone, smashed. People will decide themselves. Um, and I think for me, it's finding within that narrative what is relevant to now. You know, not what's just good, because we know what's good. We know a campaign, you know, we, we can walk around this weekend and see who campaign, you know, oil painting. Um, Manolo Mesa, the most conservative oil painting pots on canvas, ceramics on canvas, you know, vernacular from kind of local cultures. But fundamentally, paintings of ceramic pots on a canvas in a gallery, oil painted by someone who's been to an incredibly conservative academy, would have been dismissed by everyone and would still be a few years ago. You put that on the side of a building, people will connect with that in a completely different way because the context changes everything yeah no i was gonna say that i learned so much of what i do at juxtapose from it's really random but i learned a lot from you obviously martin um i really did i learned a lot from michael evis uh with glastonbury where he had no idea some of the acts that he was curating yeah we're but gonna he be knew that there was a culture behind it that they were he knew important. that it meant something to yeah. people and then I, I always felt with juxtapose like I I always curate the magazine where, where it's beyond my taste. Like loads of stuff you don't like. Yeah, no, I mean honestly, there's things that you know you might not like, but like, do you do you feel like sometimes with new art, yeah. it's a little bit like you go beyond your taste, so it's not just the Martin Reed. I mean, you know, with juxtapose it could be the Evan Preco show, but I don't yeah, yeah. try not to have it be that, even though it is a little bit. We would know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we would definitely know. It would definitely be a different magazine. I think it depends. Again, it depends what you read, right? If you read, if you study Pierre Bordeaux, you know the matters of taste. They're matters of taste, yeah. And so I think you can combat that just by being aware of where your taste comes from. Though so people will dismiss or did for many years, Bass. You know, it's ugly, dirty not very aesthetically very pleasing but when culture shifts your taste shifts yeah so those taste things are not fixed you know they're attached to the culture that you and sometimes because you're swimming in the war you don't recognize you know there's this great david graber where he talks about these you know these fish are swimming along in there young fish and the old fish is swimming it's like how's hey guys how's the water and they're like you know, old guy and swim past and one looks at the other and goes what's water and i think that's the same 
with art and taste. And unless you're consciously aware of the culture you're swimming in, you don't really recognize how it, what you need to survive or the fact that you're in water, you think you're, you know, your thoughts and opinions and ideas are your own. When was the last time you sat back at a new art production? Because you do, in every single festival for 20 years, you've had a series, a wave of different things. And this is what always gets me about new art is there's always these moments that I collect and everyone else will have their own moments that they collect. You know, it'll just be like, oh shit, I was doing this thing with this person. Like I was up in a lift with Joffrey and then he did something stupid or he, you know, there was a moment, there was just a moment that happened. And when was the last time that you as a curator of one of the longest standing mural festivals, street art festivals, that you just went like, okay, cool. That's, that's it. Yeah, this, the, today actually, this morning, when my yeah. When when I came down for breakfast and I look and I looked hungover and you were like, look at look at Evan, he's hungover. This is why I do that. <laughs> so all of the stuff we spoke about earlier about Benjamin Myers and the North and you know everything that I read leading up to this, uh, and one thing always leads to another a little bit. It's a fucking image that I hate to say, but I see it. It's imprinted as a still, it, which is. Russell Crowe in a beautiful mind when he sketches out this, yeah, yeah, yeah. sketches no, out this thing. But it feels a bit ego related to align yourself with that because it's also presented as like some fucking mad genius. But that that graph is sketching on the window when he's going a little bit mad. I have that permanently. You know, that's the re that's how research for curating new art exists. And, I, and everything is connected. You can say Dandelion, Damon Hurst, I'll find that connection between these or between Weeds and the Institute. You know, Gilles Clermont and the destruction or buffing of graffiti. And it all relates to power and it all relates to violence, soft violence in a way. Um, and I have these moments all the time when I'm running production because these things are connected in a way only for me. So the first image that someone sent me this morning was one of the crew, Tazzy, sent me a photograph of the feral fox down at our production hub. He was driving in there at seven o'clock in the morning. Look what's outside the bins and it's just a feral fox and it's like, yes, this is rewilding. This is, you know, and, I, and now I have it imprinted as a still image, and it's how I kind of navigate the world. And that's the last, and then I'm like, yes, we did something right. This is... So I left the hotel and I went to try and look for this fucking fox. I was going to befriend it and it was going to become my pet, but yeah, it's long off. That was Martin Reed in conversation for Radio Juxtapose. Who knows, maybe in 2024 he'll get another chance to befriend that fox. 
With all the uncertainty that seems to hang over the beloved Newart brand, we wish Martin and the whole team behind it nothing but success as they look to the future. That's it from us at Newart Aberdeen. If you haven't already, please make sure you do check out our other episode from this year with Swoon, who gave us one of the best deep dives we've had this year. Once again, thank you to Martin for stepping outside of his comfort zone and sitting down with us, and to the whole team at both Newart Aberdeen and Aberdeen Inspired for hosting us for the week. It really was something special this year. We will be back with you all real soon with another episode. Till that moment comes, take care of yourselves and each other.